Hello, my name is Leszek Jaszczewski. Welcome to the Liberal Europe podcast, a European Liberal Forum project. I hope you'll enjoy our program. Hello, this is Leszek Jaszczewski speaking. Um, welcome to European Liberal, Liberal Europe podcast. Um, my guest today is Denis Karolowski, who is a news editor at was a news editor in Ukrainska Pravda, and now is my fellow colleague here at the BSG, Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Uh, hi, Dennis. Thanks for coming to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for inviting me. So, as you might imagine, we will talk today about Ukraine. And uh, having someone who, who's been in Ukraine at the time where the war started, um, can you tell us about your experience as a working journalist, as a Ukrainian citizen, when it happened? So uh, I was working as a news writer in my agency before the full-scale invasion and I was working in politics department so I covered current affairs, whatever developments were in the Ukrainian politics, in the government context and uh, I really like my job because I am deeply interested in, uh, in politics, uh, cultural, social issues and I think that I have good expertise and good understanding of uh, what is needed in Ukrainian context, what, how journalism should work and deliver to the citizens, uh, how, how the journalists should cover important topics for the citizens in Ukraine uh, in terms of uh, democracy building, post, uh, post-communist uh, transition and so on. And, uh, and then on the 24th of February, the full-scale invasion happened. And to be honest, our news agency was preparing for such a scenario. We had a contingency plan to scatter our journalists across Ukraine in different corners so in case someone is killed so that there are other people working in different places different spots so we have a team put into different underground cover uh, things to work you know and and some people were preparing for evacuation to to the European Union to Poland Estonia Czech Republic Lithuania and uh, actually, I wasn't in Kiev when the war, when the full-scale invasion started. I was in uh, Vinitsa region. It's closer to border with Moldova. Uh, I was just lucky because uh, personally, I didn't believe that in the 21st century, a war of such scale can erupt in the center of Europe with missile strikes and uh, hundreds and dozens of hundreds of tanks, helicopters, jet fighters bombing the uh, cities and the military infrastructure across the whole country. And so I was very skeptical that such an escalation might happen at the time. So I was very adamant that uh, I should stay in Kyiv, but um, my family asked me to, to come for a birthday party of our close relative, which I skipped for several years. And it was a bit rude if I skip another one. Uh, so I, I went to this birthday party and it happened to be on the 20th of February and I bought a um, ticket back to Kiev on the 25th of February. So my train was uh, in the morning of the 25th of February. So I was just kind of lucky not to be in Kiev. And uh, when the full-scale invasion happened, my, my news agency management told me to uh, move to, to the place that they had. The rented a place in the countryside and to live there for some time because it was dangerous to stay in big cities for journalists. So uh, you covered the war from this countryside or? Yeah, I, I was living in uh, in like little house and 
there was good internet connection and uh, but for the first days i mostly lived in the underground because uh, no one really knew what was happening uh, for us journalists it was also very hard to get verifiable and fact-checkable information because the social media were just wild everyone shared whatever was going on in their village in their city in their neighborhood and it was very hard to distinguish between real people and social media profiles that pretend to be real people so fake fake uh, fake pages the the challenge was to actually kind of uh, filter all of this information make some coherent narrative and check it with the government officials with our sources at the uh, armed forces at the ministry of defense at the other law enforcement agencies and it took a lot of time because the management and the leadership of the government agency, they, they couldn't do, uh, dedicate so much time to us. They were busy basically defending the country. And it, it was all uh, for us a big shock, a big case. And in the midst of all of that, we, we should have kind of made some coherent, uh, verifiable news with uh, trustable uh, sources. And uh, we, we just worked for, for more than 20 hours a day trying to uncover all of this footage, photos, uh, audio files. I, I can tell you an example. Uh, in the first days uh, of the invasion, uh, the Russian military, they tried to take control of the uh, airport facility near Kiev called Hostomel. Hostomel yeah. And they sent about six helicopters with uh, paratroopers to take uh, the control of this uh, airport. Actually, after many months of, of these battleground developments, uh, the US chief of staff, I think, he told that actually they gave such a prediction that Kyiv uh, would have fallen in terms of three days because they were expecting that this hostile airport will be, will be taken away by Russians in the first hours of the invasion. Uh, but they didn't. Uh, the, the, the battle was going on for some days and the people who were living in the surrounding villages, they were taking some footage, some like uh, recording uh, just like um, on their phone recorders, like the sounds of what was happening. Right. On the one hand, it's very helpful and useful for the journalists and civic uh, society because it's, uh, it's an information on the spot and you can get some kind of... Um, some kind of um, witness account from what is happening without sending a war correspondent there right and risking uh the life of your journalist there right on the other hand you cannot trust all of these people some of them might not be even there and it might be adopted footage right and so like with, with this we all were working on that we all tried to make sense of what was happening there but we, we couldn't believe either ukrainian government or russian government or anyone else, because Ukrainian government couldn't just went, couldn't just uh, gone to the press and say what was happening as it was happening, because it was dangerous, right? It, it exposed the the Ukrainian military at the airport to the Russian uh, attacks, right? So uh, at the same time, we couldn't trust the Russian uh, government account of events, right? Right. You are describing it like. Like a verb, like a professional challenge. I'm thinking, like on a personal level, when you are when you're writing about the invasion of your own country, it is like not like you are writing about. You no, know, it's been emotional even for Poles living in Poland writing about Ukraine. I'm thinking like 
how, I mean, perhaps work can kind of distract you, but I mean, it must be, especially if you don't expect it to, 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 to happen. It's like, it, it must be so hard. I mean, you, your life is changing immediately and who knows what's going to happen, even if you don't live, like if you are not in danger, like at the moment, right? Your, all your friends, your family, or other people might be, and you don't know what's going to happen. They, you, you know, at the at the early days of the war, a lot of people, maybe not in Ukraine, but expected that, that actually Kiev might fall, right? And there would be like, I don't know, partisan war. So it's not like a prospect that you want to live through. And I'm curious, like, what were your thoughts on a kind of personal level? I mean, how does it feel to see your life like going, you know, like upside down? I know that for many people don't appreciate the fact that the war for Ukraine wasn't something new, right? It's like, it's been from 2014, but it's almost been on a very different scale and yeah, just, right. just like concentrated in the Eastern region. So, uh, can you, can you tell more about this, this experience, especially at, at the beginning? How, how, how is it like, how to, how do you understand it, especially from the perspective of, of being here? Uh, I'd say that I, I, I went completely numb completely blank. My mind was blank because of the shock and the terror that I felt. As I said, I was very skeptical that such a large and all out invasion can happen in the midst of Europe in the 21st century at the borders of NATO alliance, right? Because it's so risky. Uh, like if, if you launch missiles from Black Sea, you, you can like one missile can go to Romania by an accident, right? It's so it's so risky. And uh, the Ukrainians and Russians had so many uh, connections and so many uh, things in common before the invasion, right? So many people had relatives of France in Russia and vice versa. So for me, it was a very far-fetched prospect that an all-out invasion can happen. And because of that, I, I just went numb because I couldn't believe it. I couldn't make sense of it. Uh, yes, I, for the first weeks, I was... Like when, when I was going to bed, I was thinking, uh, and, and what about if I don't wake up in the morning because a missile strikes in the house and, uh, and the same, I was thinking about my family, about my friends, many of my friends, they, they stayed in Kiev, they, they were blocked for some time and they couldn't leave some of the, some of my acquaintances, they were living in Kiev suburbs where the Russian military actually occupied these villages and there were. And they committed lots of atrocities there. And so I, I remember that for the for a couple of first days, I couldn't have any meal. And I was very nauseous. I, like a prospect of having food just made me sick, severely sick. I couldn't make myself eat. The, the only thing I, I, I was trying to, to kind of uh, boost my energy is uh, I, I drank some some coffee, some tea with some kind of biscuit, maybe above chocolate, but that was all because I couldn't make myself eat. The same was about music. I, I couldn't listen to any music, any kind of music, because it was irritating. It was uh, it was like a thing from a far and distant world that is a, a fairy tale, like not a real world. It was like a a relic of the old world lost forever. And uh, in, in, in February and March, I wasn't thinking in the future tense. I was living in the present continuous tense only. 
Uh, I wasn't thinking about going to Oxford or what happens to me in the summer, for example. I was thinking only about the, the, the tomorrow, maybe the today, but no, no uh, future plans, no hopes or ambitions. Um, it was very scary when the Russian military state near Kyiv and uh, most of my colleagues, uh, they had uh, their houses, their personal belongings, documents left in Kyiv. Most of my friends had all of their lives basically situated in Kyiv. I mean, their homes, work, etc. So because of that, I think that the, the crucial feeling that I had is some kind of numbness and complete shock that precludes, uh, precludes oneself from thinking in the future tense, only living in this moment. And you're, you're basically, I understand, living alone in this house in the countryside or was it like a couple of journalists with you in the village that wasn't like a village that you knew, right? Or was it like the... No, I, I knew this village. It wasn't it? very, okay. very like, uh, it, it wasn't in the middle of nowhere, so okay. to say, but it wasn't uh, the, the big city. Uh, for some time, yeah, I left, uh, I was living alone, but then uh, the, the news agency suggested that my family could actually join okay. me because it, it would be uh, less dangerous for them as well and uh, it would be easier to live right. together right right so and I'm curious like because in Vinitsa what wasn't uh, or this village I suppose weren't like directly under threat of the invasion like it's too, like, too far from the front line but I wonder like when you go out to the street or you know, go to the shop or like have interaction like how are people reacting in this? I mean, especially after I know, a couple of weeks, I'm like, like people can get used to it. Like, what's that like? Or you basically, can you talk about anything else? It's I'm, I'm curious, like, how does it feel? Because also when you are like in Kiev, when the rockets are launched, perhaps you just think about survival, but then it's almost like the life could be almost seems to be normal, but it's not normal. And I wonder how it's like, how was it when you went through a couple of weeks and and what is there what is the reality of the war in in a place like this yeah, for, for, right. for people i i after some weeks i actually visited Venice, and the thing was that in the first days people bought everything they could in the supermarkets and pharmacies so when you when you uh, go to the supermarket to the pharmacy the shelves were completely empty you couldn't buy anything, like even a bottle of mineral water or a pack of toilet rolls, nothing. Everything was uh, bought, like in, in huge batches. And um, there, there was a long curfew in post at the time. So, for example, after about, let's say, 8 or 9 p.m., I guess, and until 8 a.m., you, you, you weren't allowed to, to stay in the streets. And at the time, it was a big um, worry for many people because um, actually there were some stories that uh, people could be shot on the spot without any checks or verification. It was very dangerous. Many, um, some kind of disruption agents that were behind the ranks, they tried to cause some chaos and so panic. So-called like fifth column, right? So yeah, the fifth so column. Mm -hmm. So. They were trying to cause panic and shock by uh, putting some bombs somewhere yeah. or something like that. And because of that, everyone was suspicious of uh, everybody in the street. And uh, I remember that the streets were also quite uh, 
haunted in a way. No one w- was just walking or spending their time. Everyone tried to to do their uh, like household chores, like buy a loaf of bread or a bottle of mineral water, and just go back uh, back home and not staying in the streets for long. And we didn't know who who might have a gun. For example, in the first days of the war, the Ukrainian government decided to to give away all of the guns to everyone who was willing to take up a, a gun and defend their country. And I think it will be a huge problem and a huge issue for for years to come. I I, I don't know how to to solve this problem uh, after that. I especially now in the Eastern European context. People would mm. just say, no, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to, to give it back. Mm. And uh, so because of all of these things like CAFU, uh, Russian agents acting in behind the ranks, uh, people holding guns, and you cannot know if, if someone has a gun right behind you. Uh, it was scary. Yeah. And the, and the streets were quite empty. Cafes were closed. Everything was closed yeah. apart from the supermarkets and pharmacies. Which were empty. Right. Almost. Uh, uh, I know that you, you stayed until the, the summer in Ukraine and then you, you came here to Oxford. How did you, how would you describe the kind of evolving kind of emotions around the world? Do, do you feel that like the, and even now when you're not there, I mean, I think it's still one can observe from the distance, like, it's like people still have this kind of like a, like this super mobilization, like the national mobilization around this issue or because it's now more contained again farther away from the center of Ukraine. It's like life is kind of coming back to normal. Of course, read about it. You're happy about the Kherson and so on, but it's not like it's such overwhelming experience or because country is still at a regular war, which can go, can go both ways, different ways. How, how, how would you describe this evolution of, of, you know, of, of the war in Ukraine in kind of you know, social, emotional terms? So I would say that until the summer, people were quite mobilized and uh, very uh, cautious, very um, aware of their surrounding and what they are doing, and uh, they were acting according to the rules, according to the instructions given by the government, in terms of everything, carefew, like uh, expenditure, like uh, tightening up their, their family budget, and uh, turning off the lights in the evening and in the morning, etc. And then in the summer, actually, when uh, when in April, the Russian military left the outskirts of Kiev and the northern region of Ukraine, uh, then uh, May and June was very difficult for the Ukrainian military because um, the ratio of the gun power, uh, of the weapons uh, power was clearly on the Russian side and they launched lots of ammunition on the Ukrainian units at the front line. And there were lots of casualties coming to the, to the cities uh, behind. I mean, to the far away from the front yeah. line, and the mood was quite uh, grave and uh, somber at the time. Uh, but then, in the end of June, I would say that people got just a bit more relaxed, and they felt that raw uh, that the front line stabilized, the missile strikes became uh, the Russians started launching missile strikes less often. And uh, cafes reopened, even cinemas and theaters reopened. The only nuisance that was new, uh, if compared to the uh, to the life before 2022, is that when an air ride siren goes off, you have to go and hide in the undercover shelter, right? It was just in a new way of 
living. But I think that that's how Israel probably lives for, mm. for decades, right? And um, so the summer was relatively, relatively easy for, for people who were living in the cities far from the front line. But at the front line, it was a complete disaster because it was uh, usually in the summer, sometimes temperature goes up to 40, 38, 37 degrees. And uh, the Russians were just inundating Ukrainian units at the front line with uh, guns and uh, ammunition. There were lots of uh, casualties. And then in the autumn, in the early autumn and maybe late August, situation changed to the Ukrainian side and uh, Ukrainians reclaimed lots of territory in the east and in the south. Now we reclaim Kherson back. The moon is uh, very celebratory. And uh, at the same time, I would say that because of the missile strikes, there is no power for, for days, especially in big cities like Kyiv. And people just sit at homes and stare at the wall because they can't do anything, right? You cannot cook, you cannot work, you cannot do anything, you cannot do laundry. We, 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 are, we, didn't, we are not sure how the winter unfolds with that situation. Because I don't know if people know, but in Eastern Europe, especially in Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, Poland, sometimes temperature in the winter might uh, go down below zero to minus 10, minus 15 degrees Celsius, which is a severe condition for survival. But people are very angry. They, they want to, to take revenge for that. They, they do not feel intimidated or humiliated by that. Quite on the contrary, they, they feel more anger when when Russians uh, strike the energy infrastructure. And it's not that the Ukrainians are willing to surrender or to to take down the arms. So at least as long as... The... I'm talking about the society. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Uh, and so I understand as, as long as on the military front, Ukraine is, is doing as well as now, the targeting the civilian population or electric grid wouldn't be able to force Ukrainians to surrender because people wouldn't agree to that, right? So it's, uh, I'm curious because there were moments when it seems that at least uh, Ukrainian government was, was well, proposing, which doesn't mean that it was the, the serious proposal, the kind, some kind of like talks about the, um, uh, well, if not about the peace, about at least the stopping the, the, the direct military um, uh, actions. but. It seems that now Ukraine believes it can be, uh, it can win all the territory back, including perhaps those who were uh, taken away before mm -hmm. 2014. <clears throat> Do you think that now actually with that situation, I mean, also people perhaps don't realize how destructive is the, the war for the Ukrainian side, especially because in, in Ukraine territory, how uh, I think it's, it's like estimated like at like hundreds of billions of dollars or yeah. at, at, at least i don't know if you can even make a correct estimation right now and the lives is, is not even possible to calculate the cost of lives of, of people who are fighting this is the kind of popular army right these are the, like the normal people like who are fighting not just professional soldiers if it changes anything so i'm curious how do you see this i know it's hard to tell but perhaps you must have your own opinion how this situation might evolve with such a strong support for for fighting but at the same time such an immense destruction going on asymmetric because russia is not being destroyed right and they are, don't suffer that much from the sanctions so far 
the economy is not suffering as much as Ukraine economy. How do you think that's that could evolve? Like, what what would have to happen? It it seems like either regime change in Russia or some kind of huge victory on the front for either sides, which is doesn't seem to be happening like soon, like complete victory Ukraine and maybe. But if it doesn't happen, it seems like a very protracted, very very destructive war. Do you see like? How you see it might evolve for for for, for Ukraine <clears throat> and and for Ukrainian people especially. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the war is very destructive, and the casualty toll is rising every day. Uh, recently, the U.S. chief of the general staff, Mark Milley, General McMilly, publicly went to the press and said that actually um, Ukraine and Russia each lost a hundred thousand uh, lives in the military ranks. Which is uh, the, the astonishing number. Yeah, it is, yeah, the, is the, the staggering number of people of people's lives lost. And I think if uh, probably I wouldn't bet on it, but probably it's higher than the casualty toll during the Yugoslav wars. Uh, so it would be the most uh, bloodshed in war after the Second World War in Europe. And uh, so how the war unfolds uh, next. Uh, so I, I have two scenarios and the crucial variable that changes the outcome is the Western support, because actually uh, maybe in the media it's not uh, reiterated enough, but actually Ukrainian government uh, depends a lot on the Western support, especially the US and the European Union in terms of financial aid and uh, weapons. Uh, basically, I think that the West decided uh, that um, they are going to provide Ukraine with weapons and the European Union is going to, uh, to support Ukraine with financial aid. And so the positive outcome is that I think uh, Ukraine is going to, to persevere through the winter, that Ukrainian population is willing to, to take the challenge and to, to kind of uh, survive this winter. The good news is that uh, some meteorological agencies, they forecast that the winter will be mild. There, there is not going to be some severe winters like during Napoleon's invasion of Russia. No, nice. you're not going to see that. And if the Western support continues, uh, I think that Ukraine can definitely reclaim the territories uh, that were occupied before 2022, apart from Crimea. And perhaps Ukrainian government will be willing to start negotiations uh, about the ceasefire and uh, Crimea. The crucial thing for Ukrainians, not only for the Ukrainian government, but for Ukrainians as a society, is that Russia has to, to take their, their military away from Ukraine. They occupy yeah. quite a big uh, part of the territory, which is comparable to, uh, to the size twice as much as Austria's uh, whole territory, right? It's a, it's a big part of territory right. that is still occupied. And people live in, in this occupation. They, some of them are tortured. Some of them cannot have base, uh, access to basic uh, products like food, medicines, etc. So if it's not going to happen, Ukrainians will, will go on uh, fighting. And uh, the analysis showed that actually Russian military stocks is depleted severely because they are under sanctions regime. They depend heavily on the Western technology. They cannot do the missiles from scratch on their own. And the another scenario that I, that I think is plausible, kind of feasible, if the Western support suddenly stops 
either because of the cost of living crisis and the voters changing their mood, because we, we can see that right now, right? In many European countries, the voters now turn away from the right. significant support for Ukraine because of the cost of living crisis. And uh, if it changes, I think that perhaps during the winter or right after the winter, Ukrainian government will be willing to, to take up the negotiations with Russia. But the crucial thing will be is that uh, Russia leaves the territory at least that that was occupied after the 24th of February 2022. Yeah. It, it, it would be the minimum requirement. And also the minimum requirement would be uh, to stop the missile strikes, surely. Of course. Because you cannot live under the missile strikes. But recently Zelensky at the G20 summit, he had uh, 10 bullet points, how mm -hmm. he sees this negotiation. He is willing to have negotiation. But whenever, uh, whenever there is like media story that uh, Ukraine has to take negotiations right on the next day, Russia uh, launches a, an all-out uh, military strike against the energy infrastructure and like they they bury in the prospect of negotiations themselves. They show that they do not uh, have a serious attitude to, to that idea. And so Zelensky said that the minimum requirement would be is that Russia leaves the uh, Russian military leaves the territory of Ukraine and at least uh, face some kind of reparations for all of the destruction right. which was given. I personally think that President Putin is not willing to pay reparations <laughs> and he's definitely not willing to, no. to, to leave the military. So I think that uh, this variable which I talked about, the Western support, it will, it will show uh, which uh, of these two scenarios is going to unfold. And I wanted to ask you at the, at the very last, uh, what in your, your opinion are the kind of news stories, the issues that people here in the in the Western media don't necessarily read about or, or hear about from Ukraine. There are the front stories or there's like diplomacy stories, but is there like anything you, uh, you as a journalist, you think it should be actually more exposed and what, what people should read about? Maybe, maybe there are some Ukrainian uh, stories that can be just republished in English or in different languages. So do you have something like this? I would say two things. Firstly, is that uh, sometimes, especially when we see this uh, kind of articles popping up in the Western uh, news outlet, that the negotiations in the only plausible solution to the war as soon as possible to put an end to the cost of living crisis, to energy crisis, to the destruction and loss of life in Ukraine, it negotiates negotiation they sometimes uh forget about all of those millions of people that still live in the occupied area and they're exposed to severe um, to severe conditions uh, in terms of uh, lack of access to basic health care and food uh, they they might be tortured for their sentiments to ukraine and I think that it must be reiterated uh, over and over and over again, because sometimes people forget about that. In Ukrainian society, no one uh, forgets about that. Everyone is aware and uh, people think a lot about that uh, on, a, on a daily basis. And secondly, I think is the story about the frontline workers who actually sustain all of these efforts that are going on behind the frontline. 
it's about firefighters who go into uh, rescue uh, people from the rubble when a uh, missile hits some civilian building. It's about the uh, railway workers who uh, who get really low wages, but they continue working, and they uh, their work is what uh, is what sustains all of the war machine in Ukraine because they deliver the weapons, foods, medicines, people from different cities, and I think it's about the doctors who work on a on a twenty four seven basis, uh, tending for the wounded and uh, helping civilians to uh, get decent healthcare during the wartime. Uh, I think it's about the teachers who go on teaching to the children despite all of the disruption caused for years. So uh, just just a quick fact that for two years in, in Ukraine, people uh, children didn't uh, didn't get a decent education because it was COVID-19 lockdowns. Now they cannot get decent education because there is a risk of missile strike. And teachers try to to help them actually get some kind of decent tuition and uh, exposure to to knowledge, to skills that are relevant in Ukraine. And I think these stories about the frontline workers who work on low wages, who work overtime, and they 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 uh, they are the people who actually who actually sustain all of the life in Ukraine that is still there. And I think uh, it's very moving at the same time, and it's very crucial for people to know about uh, these daily heroic acts that are not uh, very social media friendly, or they might not be. They might not look very good on the front cover of Time magazine, but it's 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 what interesting and it's what uh, moving about this one. Thank you, Dennis, for this very personal and touching account of what sometimes seems as being very far, especially free from Oxford, but actually it's very real and very close and it's transforming people's lives. And if not for the uh, extreme heroism of like normal Ukrainians, yes, I this war so. might, 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 might would come further. So Ukraine's fighting not just for herself, but for the future of, for the future of Europe. Thank you for, thank so much, Daniel, for being with us. Yeah, uh, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, it's been... Um, Liberal Europe podcast. I'm Leszek Jerzewski. Please tune in for Ricardo in two weeks. Um, until next time, goodbye. You can find this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And if you like what we are doing and want to help spreading the liberal values, please give us a five-star review and share with your friends.